Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight, straight from the source, Senator Bob Menendez defiant, now trying to explain the hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash stashed around his house as a third Democratic senator calls for him to resign. Plus, former President Trump threatening the highest-ranking military officer in the nation, who also happens to potentially be a witness in the special counsel's case against him, will get reaction from Trump's former defense secretary in moments. And the Trump campaign first said that he bought a gun today in South Carolina, but after an immediate uproar, they walked him back. What's the law for someone who's been indicted four times? I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is refusing to resign despite the growing calls from within his own party. Now three Democratic senators calling for him to step down. And just in tonight, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi joined them. The charges are uh, formidable. And if, in fact, we're going to say that if you're indicted, you should resign, it'd probably be a good idea if he did resign probably would be a good idea. The Democrat, who has now been indicted for a second time, though, says he has no intention of doing so. I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. These were his first comments on camera since being indicted, and the member of the Senate Banking Committee offered this explanation for why nearly half a million dollars in cash was somehow safer in jackets and closets in his home rather than, say, a bank. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Menendez did not offer an explanation for the gold bars or the Mercedes-Benz sports car that prosecutors say he received as bribe payments for using his position to funnel money and military aid to Egypt. Allegations that, of course, are made all the more brazen given he was the top-ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Throughout my 30 years in the House of Representatives and the Senate, I have always worked to hold accountable those countries, including Egypt, for human rights abuses, the repression of its citizenry, civil society, and more. The senator made no mention about running for re-election today as he insisted that the rest of the details he believes will come out in court. The court of public opinion is no substitute 
for our revered justice system. I should note that justice system has a strikingly bipartisan track record. Currently, two sitting lawmakers are facing charges. Senator Menendez and Congressman George Santos, one Democrat, one Republican. But given the allegations against the senator focus on his position to influence arms sales and U.S. aid to Egypt, I want to get straight to the source tonight with Democrat and co-founder of the Egypt Human Rights Caucus, Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia. Congressman, thank you for being here tonight. You know, you heard Senator Menendez there. He says he's not resigning, but you believe that he should. Why? Yeah, absolutely. First, there is a, a strong tradition in the Congress that when indicted, you should resign. He's still going to get your day in court. He hasn't been convicted yet. But I don't know how he can do his job effectively with this, this incredibly damning indictment hanging over his head. And, and frankly, I wasn't impressed by the press conference today. What questions did he not answer that you still have? Well, first of all, if you believe that that's why he has the hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash hanging around, and even if you did have it, why wouldn't you put it in a safe at home? But that doesn't explain why he texted a list of the U.S. Embassy employees that ended up in CeCe's hands. Doesn't explain why he ghostwrote a memo that called for lifting the hold on military aid. It doesn't explain why he had the secret meeting with Israeli intel or with uh, Egyptian intelligence. You know, we've been pushing hard against Egypt's human rights violations. You know, the, the thousands of people that are held indefinitely and incarcerated, the torture, the rape, the violation of just human rights. And so the senator says one thing that he does these letters, but then he does exactly the opposite when it's not in the public eye. Yeah, and I should note on the money, some of it was in a safe deposit box, but you're right, a lot of it was found either in jackets or just around the house. But you mentioned Egypt, and I know obviously that has been something that has been a, a huge issue for you, how they, are, how they are on human rights. And you heard the senator, you know, he's stepped down as the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee for Democrats for the time being, following Senate Democrats' rules. But he made this defense of his record on Egypt today. One fact is indisputable. Throughout my time in Congress, I have remained steadfast on the side of civil society and human rights defenders in Egypt and everywhere else in the world. If you look at my actions related to Egypt during the period described in this indictment and throughout my whole career, my record is clear. Is that how you see his record? Or what new questions do you have about the actions he took regarding Egypt, given these allegations? Well, well, Caitlin, let's look at his actions. So he says he wrote a letter and he stands up for human rights. But the only tool we really have in our diplomatic box is to withhold military aid. And under the conditions of our agreements, we can uphold, uh, withhold up to $300 million every year in aid to Egypt because of the human rights violations. Well, he actually, and the Biden administration right now is withholding 65 million, considering withholding the rest of it. But Senator Menendez, on the other hand, was working actively to make sure they got all of their money. So he's doing one thing, he says one thing, but he does something completely opposite. What do you think this warrants from the administration? I mean, they just announced $235 million in military aid in recent weeks to Egypt. Of course, I know that you would put out a statement on that as well. What questions does this raise about that relationship going forward? Well, the biggest question it raises is Egypt, you know, a friend and an ally ostensibly, is, is conducting a essentially an espionage operation within the U.S. Senate uh, right here in Washington, D.C. I think that calls for a much stronger response from the Biden administration and that the straightforward one is to withhold the whole $300 million. 
So far, three Senate Democrats have called on Senator Menendez to resign. We just heard from former Speaker Pelosi a few minutes ago. Do you believe that Senator Schumer and other Democratic leaders also need to call for him to resign? Uh, I think everyone approaches it in their own way. I think it's harder when he's been a colleague for year after year. Uh, The Nancy Pelosi uh, calling is very powerful because she's still the most important person in Congress, even in her emeritus status. And you notice that Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey and a Democrat, and I'm sure a longtime associate with uh, the Senator Menendez, has also called for him to step down. Yeah, he, he certainly has been an ally of Menendez's, but he was one of the first to come out. We haven't heard from Senator Cory Booker yet. If he stays in the Senate, what does it do for, for your party's credibility? It hurts it. I mean, I think, you know, we all make mistakes, but when we make mistakes, we have to own them and take responsibility for them, whether they're our own personally or whether they're part of our family or, in this case, our Democratic caucus. And it, it won't, won't help us to have him hanging around. Well... Right now, he says he plans on doing that. We'll see if that stays the case. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. Don Beyer. I'm joined now by Leslie Caldwell, who eight years ago as a prosecutor for the Justice Department announced a different set of bribery charges against Senator Menendez and a Florida doctor. I should note Menendez was acquitted after the jury deadlocked in that case and that former President Trump actually commuted that doctor sentence in another case on other charges. But Regarding this indictment, Leslie, what do you make uh, of it? And do you believe it's stronger than what the Justice Department tried to bring in that previous case against Senator Menendez? So I think it's very different. Um, that The first indictment of Senator Menendez was filed and, and tried when the law was one thing, and then or actually it was filed when the law was one way. And then between the indictment and the trial, the law changed in the form of a Supreme Court decision making it much harder for prosecutors to prove public corruption. Um, This is a different kind of indictment with a very different fact pattern, and the indictment is very careful um, to allege links between specific conduct uh, and specific benefits that were provided to the senator and and his wife. So I think that makes a big difference, and we'll see see, um, how it shakes out. Yeah, and of course what you're referring to is the Supreme Court uh, essentially changing what counts as bribing a public official. That was while his first trial was going on. And after that trial, one of the jurors in the case said this about why they did not convict him ultimately in 2017. There's no smoking gun in this case. We didn't say so. That's all. You know, we went by that. We all pretty much went by our hearts. And, you know, we didn't find, think that there was enough going on there in the case to, to convict him. In these charges, obviously, Leslie, there are pictures of gold bars, cash that was found in his house, text messages complaining about late payments. I mean, how challenging do you believe are the facts that are laid out in this indictment, the allegations? How challenging is that to rebut? I think it's going to be very challenging. I mean, the first case involved an individual from whom he was getting benefits, but that individual also was a longtime friend. That's not a fact in this case, apparently. And the allegations, the the sort of visual power of the, the items that were given to him and the amounts that were given to him is much more significant than it was in the earlier case. I think it's going to be very difficult to explain the gold bars. Um, I, I understand he's already made some statements about the cash, but I think it's all going to be difficult to explain, particularly when there are allegations of links to very specific behavior by him. 
He did offer an explanation for the cash today. I mean, and just as background, I mean, the average senator makes $174,000 a year. But this is what Senator Menendez said to explain why he had nearly half a million dollars in cash in his home. Now, this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. If you were prosecuting this case, how would you respond to that defense? Well, I'd first want to test to see if it was even accurate. I'm sure the government is subpoenaing, if they haven't already, his bank records um, from his personal savings account that he says this money came from to see what the flow of funds was in and out of that account. Um, apparently, according to the allegations, some of the envelopes that contained cash had fingerprints and DNA of some of the co-defendants, which is difficult to explain. Um, so I think it's going to be very challenging. Yeah. We'll see what he says going forward. Of course, he said, you know, obviously he does have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. He's got that first court appearance on Wednesday. Leslie Caldwell, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. And still ahead, America's top general facing a disturbing new threat, including from the man who appointed him, Donald Trump, insinuating that General Mark Milley be executed. What does Trump's former defense secretary, who served alongside General Milley, have to say about these remarks? Secretary Mark Esper will join me in moments. Plus, the Trump campaign first saying that the former president bought a gun, then correcting themselves after an uproar. Of course, remember, Trump is under four felony indictments. Can he even legally purchase a firearm? That's next. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. General Mark Milley tonight is facing an onslaught of violent rhetoric just days before he is set to retire as the nation's top military officer. On Friday, former President Donald Trump basically accused the departing Joint Chiefs chairman of treason. Quote, an act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. Republican Congressman Paul Gosar then suggested in a newsletter rant on Sunday night that Milley be hanged, along with other disgusting remarks that do not bear repeating and therefore won't be repeated here tonight. Both Trump and the congressman were piling on Milley for his response to the January 6th attack, including phone calls that Milley had made to allies and to government officials in China, reassuring them at that time that the U.S. was still a stable government despite what had happened in Washington that day. As a reminder, Trump handpicked General Milley to the role that he has now in 2018 and showered him with praise at the time. Mark Milley, he's a great gentleman, he's a great patriot, he's a great soldier. 
Joining me tonight, former Defense Secretary under former President Donald Trump, Mark Esper, who, of course, worked alongside General Milley in the administration and wrote about his experience in A Sacred Oath, his book. Secretary Esper, I mean, how dangerous do you believe this post from Donald Trump is? Look, it's very dangerous, Caitlin. It's it's wrong. It's disgusting. It's it's despicable. And it's it's not just an assault on one person, Mark Milley, who's who has served his country nobly and uh, who now has to fear that somebody may act on such remarks. But it's also an attack on the institution of the military officer corps, the professionalism and their sworn oath to defend the Constitution of the United States. So, look, I see this on multiple levels. And either way you look at it, it's just despicable. One thing that kind of stands out when, when Trump says something like this that is obviously so egregious and you typically would never hear a president, a former president, attacking the person he put in as the Joint Chiefs chairman is kind of how muted the response to it is. You know, certainly from Republican leaders on Capitol Hill, do you believe it's important for them to speak out about this kind of incendiary comment from, from Trump? Yeah, well, look, first of all, I'm offended that one American would say this about another American. Uh, far, far worse is the fact that the president, the commander in chief, no less, is saying this against the, about the four star chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who has spent 40 plus years in uniform in war and peace fighting, defending his country and his family sacrificing along with him. So, look, I, I do think I think it should be con condemned from folks on the right, the left, Republicans, Democrats, conservative uh, conservatives and liberals alike. This type of talk should be condemned once and for all. And Secretary Esper, at the heart of this, what, what Trump is talking about, he's, can you just clarify what did happen with those phone calls to government officials in China? Who directed those? Why those would have happened, despite what Trump is obviously implying in social media? Yeah, look, there's two incidents, one in January of 2021, which I was not part of because I was fired in, in November. But the other one happens in uh, mid-October. And uh, as a result, uh, Milley has been accused of being a rogue general, acting on his own, possibly sharing information with the Chinese, so forth and so on. And look, I think much of this is due to incomplete and inaccurate reporting uh, by a few authors, uh, most of whom I have respect for, but who are, I think, trying to to, to depict a hero fighting against a, a lone president. But the, the story is much more complicated. I mean, the accusation that Milley called the Chinese on his own is simply wrong. Uh, I had reached out to my Chinese counterpart in mid-October of 2020 to send the message because of what we were hearing through intelligence channels, through open sources and whatnot, that the Chinese were scared, alarmed, uh, uncertain about what was happening in Washington. So I wanted to send a message to them that everything was okay. We had no intentions about them. We want to keep the lines of communication open, so forth and so on, because I wanted to, I wanted to avoid any type of accidental conflict or confrontation with the Chinese. So about a week later, after uh, my, my call through a subordinate was initiated, I was in a meeting with um, uh, Mark Milley and Admiral Davidson and others, and I had conveyed to them that we had sent this message to the Chinese. And as is, typically happens is we have others in the chain of command to do the same. Milley, Davidson, and I spoke about this. I directed Milley to reach out to his counterpart as well and convey the same message, which he did a few days later with the help of uh, some of um, uh, civilian, appointee, uh, civilian appointees who work for me. And by the end of October, he conveyed the message. And the good news is the Chinese came back and said, thank you very much. We've been very concerned. We appreciate uh, what's going on. Because look, at the end of the day, nobody wants uh, some type of accidental conflict to happen with the Chinese or with any country for that matter. So I thought it was always good diplomacy and responsible statecraft 
for the, for the DOD to be doing this. And the Joint Chiefs Chairman, I mean, they just take orders from either the Defense Secretary, the role that you were in, or the President, right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is an advisor to myself, to the President, to the National Security Council. He has no formal command authority over anybody. He, he's an advisor, he is a coordinator, he can be a communicator. And so what we, he was acting on was my directive to reach out to his Chinese counterpart which is something we did typically. We would do it with regard to the Russians in Syria. Uh, we would do it with other militaries around the world to make sure we were passing along a unified, coherent message right. up and down the chain of command about our intentions. I have, when I was reading this and reading this post, I was thinking of how we reported several months ago that General Milley actually met with federal investigators over that recording of Trump allegedly discussing classified documents after he left office. I mean, Milley could potentially be a witness in that case, maybe in the election subversion case as well. Do you believe that that could be part of part of why Trump is targeting him now? Who knows? Uh, it's hard to say. Look, I, I think uh, um, Trump is uh, is obviously not happy with what Milley uh, has apparently said before the committee. Uh, Milley and others are not, I'm sorry, Trump and others are not happy with some of the reporting coming out of some of the books that were written about the Trump administration, where Milley is quoted as doing and, or saying uh, this or that. Look, I, I think part of that has been unfair to Milley by authors, again, sometimes inaccurately or incompletely uh, writing about situations and, and looking to find a, um, a, a hero to strike a contrast against uh, a, a villain. And so all these things get, um, you know, amplified. And look, Millie, Millie's tenure was extraordinary. He did a great job. Um, he, he has served honorably, and uh, he, he deserves our praise and thanks. And he does not deserve what he's re receiving from President Trump right now. You mentioned this new reporting. There is a new piece in The Atlantic, and part of that says that Millie has told friends that he expects if Trump does return to the White House, which he's obviously trying to do, that the newly elected president will come after him. And Millie has reportedly told people, quote, he'll start throwing people in jail and I'd be on the top of the list. Do you think that's a justified concern? Look, I think it's a legitimate fear. If, if you recall from my memoir that you mentioned at the top, I cite a circumstance where uh, the president, egged on by his uh, close advisors, wanted to call back to active duty uh, Admiral McRaven and General McChrystal to court-martial them for some things that they allegedly said in, um, in the public domain. And Millie and I had to talk the president out of doing that for any number of reasons. So is it possible that a new loyalist sitting around Trump in the Oval Office will say, let's call up Millie? Yeah, it's quite likely. Now, the good news is if there's a silver lining in all this is uh, Trump's kind of poisoned a well. I don't know that a jury could or anybody would find that he could be uh, get, given what we would call command influence, that, that such a thing could happen. But nonetheless, I think it's a legitimate fear. The president's also said that a second term would be about retribution, right? So I, I think these are all legitimate concerns. But can we just take a moment? And, and I mean, you were his Pentagon chief. The former defense secretary is saying that it is a legitimate fear that the former commander in chief, who is seeking to be the commander in chief again, would want to seek retribution against someone like General Milley simply because he doesn't like the way that that, that tenure is being reported in books and in articles. Yeah, and I, I think simply also because the way Milley conducted himself, which was to offer candid, frank advice, uh, if it wasn't what the president wanted to hear because of what Milley was saying or he didn't want to hear what I was saying, uh, look, he doesn't like that. He wants to find yes men in his office. Uh, and so, yeah, he would do that. It's, it's hard for me to believe I'm saying that as well. I, I, I wish I didn't have to say that. But if I didn't have the experience in the Oval Office with, with uh, President Trump seriously wanting to call back to active duty, 
McChrystal McRaven to McRaven to to court martial them, uh, you know, I would be less certain. But unfortunately, it is what it is. Just remarkable. Secretary Mark Esper, thank you for joining with your perspective tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. Coming up, Donald Trump seemingly gun shopping on the campaign trail in South Carolina today, saying he wanted to buy this handgun that actually had his face on it. But because he has been charged with multiple felonies, questions were immediately raised about whether or not he can even legally do so. We'll discuss next. Former President Donald Trump made a campaign stop at a gun store in South Carolina today. The 2024 Republican frontrunner seen on camera admiring and posing with a handgun that had his face on it. And he was heard on camera saying that he was interested in buying it. They like me. Moments later, his spokesperson posted online that Trump had bought the gun saying he bought that Glock, immediately raising questions, though, about Trump's ability to do so and to obtain a new weapon now that he is a criminal defendant in multiple jurisdictions. Not long ago, the Trump campaign spokesman deleted that post and clarified to CNN that the former president did not actually buy a gun, despite saying initially that he had. Joining me now is CNN contributor Stephen Katowski, who is a gun safety instructor and firearms reporter for TheReload.com. Obviously, Stephen, the first question that everyone had and the reason I believe that that post was likely deleted is it raised questions about what Trump can legally do here, given he's been indicted four times, he's facing those 91 counts. Can he legally buy a gun now that he is a criminal defendant? As the law stands right now, he can't. Anyone who's under felony indictment is prohibited from receiving new guns. They can keep the guns they have, but they can't buy or obtain new ones uh, so long as they're under that indictment. But does this raise any constitutional questions? I mean, has the law stopping criminal defendants from from owning a gun, from receiving a gun been tested in the courts before? Yes, there's actually uh, quite a lot of controversy around this law right now. There's been decisions on either side of whether it's constitutional uh, since the Supreme Court handed down its landmark decision in Bruin. And so it's the constitutionality of this law is questionable, but at the same time, it's still in effect. There, no circuit, no uh, appeals court has ruled that this law is unconstitutional yet. We may soon get that ruling, but as of now, it's clear that he could not buy that gun. But isn't this the same issue that, that we've heard Hunter Biden's attorneys weighing over his gun charges that they believe essentially it's on shaky legal ground and that they can they can challenge that? It's similar, yes. It's a different law. Hunter Biden's Charges deal with him uh, lying on the background check about his drug use and, and being a drug user while owning a gun. But the same legal theory applies in both cases because of that Supreme Court ruling in Bruin, which says any modern prohibition, any modern gun law has to have a historical analog that dates back to the time of the founding. And it's not clear whether these laws do. So when it comes to Trump specifically, I mean, we saw him. He's at a campaign event in South Carolina. He stopped at this store. He was there talking to uh, the person who is selling these firearms. I mean, legally, what can he do as he's facing this indictment? He can keep the guns that he already has. Uh, he can go shooting. It's not a possession ban like you'd see for somebody who was convicted of a felony. It's a ban on receiving new guns. So he can't buy a gun. In fact, if you've ever bought a gun and you fill out the background check form, they explicitly ask you if you're under indictment for a felony on that form. And if you say yes, you fail the background check. Uh, but 
Yeah, he also likely can't receive guns as a gift, which is a pretty significant problem when you're running as a Republican who's, you know, pro Second Amendment guy. There are oftentimes people want to give you guns on the campaign trail, especially Donald Trump, who there's a number of, of companies that make these guns that have his face on them. Yeah, I mean, that was exactly the issue that was at hand today. I mean, I think what's what caused all of this was not that just people saw him there and assumed, oh, he's in this gun store, he's trying to buy something. It's that his own spokesperson had posted that he had actually purchased said gun before later saying, no, he didn't. He didn't actually post it. Yeah, I mean, it's this is a fairly obscure law, I guess, for most. The average person might not know about this. You know, people know that the conviction of a felony makes you prohibited from owning guns. A lot of people might not understand that just being indicted on any felony, whether it's federal or state, would trigger this federal prohibition. So uh, it seems like his campaign staff certainly didn't understand that and, and it seems like he didn't understand it either. Yeah, not something typically the campaign staff uh, would have to know, but obviously this is an extraordinary circumstance. Stephen, thank you so much for joining with your expertise on this, obviously. Thank you. Meanwhile, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is plotting his next move. Big question about what exactly that's going to be as the government is hurtling toward a shutdown tonight and his job is potentially on the line. The White House saying it's Republicans who are to blame. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, President Biden is blasting hard-right Republicans for driving Congress potentially towards a government shutdown now just less than six days away. Now a small group of extreme House Republicans, they don't want to live up to that deal. And everyone in America could be faced with, uh, uh, with paying the price for that. We made a deal. We shook hands. We said, this is what we're going to do. And now they're reneging on the deal, which is not much of a surprise these days. This may not surprise you what I'm about to say, but former President Trump is backing those few on the hard right, telling them they should shut down Washington unless they, quote, get everything that they are asking for. Of course, the problem is there is almost no chance of that happening. But without a deal, millions of people, Americans, could be impacted by a government shutdown that could happen just days from now. It could potentially mean that active duty troops and Border Patrol agents would have to work without getting paid. Nearly 7 million women and children who rely on food assistance programs would potentially be cut off. Farmers could lose access to their loans and air travel could see disruptions if those unpaid TSA officers call out of work. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing a defining decision by the end of the week when it comes to this. He could either potentially put up a bipartisan Senate bill, maybe risking his speakership, though, or he could side with the hard right flank and it would eventually trigger a shutdown. 
Let's discuss the options here with, former, with Jamal Simmons, who is the former deputy assistant to President Biden, and Doug High, former communications director for the Republican National Committee. So, Doug, I want to start with you because, I mean, House Republicans would initial, initial, essentially need some kind of legislative trick at this point to avoid a shutdown, given they have such little time. And Speaker McCarthy sent them home last week. Mm-hmm. How does the GOP get itself out of this if they even potentially can do so? Uh, the, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, we know there's going to be a shutdown, almost you know, 99.44% chance of that happening. It seems an impossibility for, not, for it not to happen. So then the question becomes, if we shut down the government, how do we reopen it? And what is the deal that, that can be cut between uh, Kevin McCarthy and Senate Democrats, d- Democrats, obviously the White House as well, and what is he allowed to do with his own conference? And his challenge is, it only takes five people to move a deal south and to, to make a motion to vacate the, the chair. So whatever he does, it's a very difficult situation. It's why, it's why the elections in 2022 were disappointing for Republicans. You know, even though we won back the House, Democrats threw the party. And this is essentially why Republicans in the House have found themselves in a very precarious position. The government's going to close and they don't know how it's going to reopen at this point. Yeah, it's such a slim majority. And Jamal, I mean, President Biden, you saw him today weighing in on this. They're coming out in front of it. So is the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, essentially saying, if this happens, it's Republicans who are to blame. I think the reason Trump is obviously advocating for a shutdown is because he believes chaos in Washington could benefit him. I mean, do you think the White House is doing enough to emphasize who it is that would be responsible for this shutdown? The White House is doing that. They are sending out different cabinet secretaries, as you were talking about a minute ago, different cabinet secretaries every day to tell us what's going to happen in each individual place. And look, at some point, the weight of this and what its impact is going to be on real people will start to matter. When I was a kid, my uh, stepfather was an entrepreneur. We had a couple years where we didn't make ends meet. We were on WIC payments. And you know what's worse than having to depend on the government to help feed your kids? Not having the money to feed your kids. And so if WIC payments and these payments for moms dries up, those moms are not going to go down without fighting. Same thing's going to happen with military pay. Same thing's going to happen with Border Patrol. So I think we're going to have um, a real, if a real shutdown happens, it doesn't have exemptions in it, that might be the counterweight that finally gets this thing to move. Yeah, and you just heard what Doug mentioned there, the idea if a motion to vacate comes up for Speaker McCarthy. I mean, Democrats could potentially play a pivotal role in deciding his fate should Democrats help Kevin McCarthy keep his job? I mean, what do you? what's your sense? Uh, my sense after calling around to some people today is that that is not going to happen. <laughs> there is no stomach in the Democratic caucus to help Kevin McCarthy keep his job. Now, now Democrats do want to keep the government open, but Kevin McCarthy also has a problem. Doug can speak to this probably better. In the Rules Committee, they've got to get a bill out of the Rules Committee, which means he's going to need some Republicans, because the balance isn't quite the same, he's going to need some Republicans to get that bill out of the Rules Committee. Yeah. That will be the test for him. And of course, they're struggling to even get their own GOP or their own defense bill passed last week. Doug, I know that you were coming on here to talk about this, and I do want more of your thoughts on Kevin McCarthy, but we do have some breaking news from the Republican National Committee. They have just announced who has qualified for the second Republican debate. That's going to be happening this Wednesday. And right now that list includes North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and Vivek Ramaswamy, and Tim Scott. But notably not on there is Arkansas, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. What do you make of what the debate is going to look like on Wednesday night with one fewer candidate on the stage? I don't think there's any reason to expect that it'll be any different 
than, than the last one. We might see some more breakout moments from different people here or there. But ultimately, all of these candidates need to ask themselves a question. Are you running to win the nomination or are you running for something else? And everything we've seen so far sort of suggests that there's a something else because they're awfully hesitant to go after Donald Trump uh, directly. And when you have an opponent who's got a, got a huge lead and then gets indicted in politics, whether you're running for mayor, Congress, president, what have you, you use that against them. Instead, what we've seen from most of the Republican candidates in, in these debates is, and, and outside of the debates is not just not going after Trump as they normally would do. They reinforce Donald Trump's messaging. That's unheard of in American politics. So what we're going to have to find out Wednesday night is somebody running for real. And are they going to go after Trump? Now, we don't know if that's going to be successful or not, but we sure know it won't be successful if it's not Trump. Well, Doug, let me ask you about that, though, because Asa Hutchinson is someone who was willing to mm -hmm. criticize Trump and often did so uh, pretty regularly. I mean, he's not on that debate stage either because he didn't meet the fundraising or polling threshold. So what does that mean? Well, I think first it means, you know, Asa Hutchinson is a good, honorable man. He was a good governor for Arkansas. It's time to get out. It's time to winnow that field down. And, you know, coming out of this debate, whatever happens, we should see more Republicans get out of this. If you want to be the nominee, you want fewer people running and you want to draw those contrasts with, with your opponent. And that opponent is Donald Trump. And look, everybody who's seen Scott, um, Star Wars knows Luke Skywalker had to confront Darth Vader. He couldn't sit back and just hope that the Force or Han Solo would take care of it. Okay, you had Jamal <laughs> laughing at that. Doug Hyde, Jamal Simmons. Go, go, go accomplished. I'm going to say I've never seen Star Wars. You know, don't kill me. <laughs> don't tell Casey Hunt that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. Coming up, a major U.S. city is facing a water crisis tonight. The Army Corps of Engineers is now involved, planning to send 36 million gallons of fresh water a day to hold off the threat inside the plan to save the drinking water in New Orleans. That's next. Breaking news tonight, as the Republican National Committee has just announced the list of candidates who will appear on stage for the second Republican debate on Wednesday night. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who was there on the first on stage for the first Republican debate, did not meet the criteria to participate. He has now just joined us by phone. Governor, thank you so much for joining us. What does this mean for your campaign that you are not going to be on that stage Wednesday night? We're going to continue the campaign. Uh, whenever you look at uh, where we need to be, I've set a goal to be at 4% uh, by Thanksgiving or by the next debate. And so we set internal goals. We're not going to let uh, everything be dictated by uh, the standards that are set uh, by the RNC. And so uh, we're excited to continue this week. I'll be uh, in a number of different venues, be in three or four different states over the uh, next couple of weeks. We'll continue the campaign. We will evaluate. I know that there's going to be those that says we ought to step aside. But whenever you look at uh, the role that Iowa and New Hampshire plays, we're going to continue to compete there and measure it based upon the response we get in those states. Okay, so it sounds like Thanksgiving is your next date for when you'll reassess this campaign. Governor, I mean, you have been one of the few 2024 GOP candidates who, who has spoken out against Trump, who is very critical directly of him. What does it mean if you're not on that stage Wednesday night without that criticism of the Republican frontrunner? Well, uh, we'll see. But uh, I, I heard your previous guest that criticized the Republican candidates for not being tough on Donald Trump. And, you know, they got to recognize that uh, I went out there and I made my case. And, uh, you know, it, it 
you know, I'm not on the next debate stage. So there's a lot of critics that are outside, uh, uh, you know, the realm of the candidates, and uh, they, they're going to offer a lot of advice. But uh, I think that you will see uh, the candidates going after Donald Trump. Uh, he's the leader. And if you're going to run against him, uh, you've got to make your case. Uh, you've got to do it in a way that presents your own arguments. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, nobody brings more experience to this race than me uh, as a governor, as head of the DEA on the issues that we face. That's the case that we make. And, and I think as time goes on, voters will be responding to that. Governor Asa Hutchinson, it was just confirmed that you will not be on the debate stage Wednesday night, but you say that you will not be dropping out of this race. You say you'll reassess come Thanksgiving. Governor, thank you so much for quickly hopping on the phone with us tonight. Uh, thank you, Caitlin. Have a good evening. And you just heard the story we teased a few moments ago on the water crisis happening in New Orleans. Back on that story with Bill Weir in just a moment. A serious situation unfolding in New Orleans tonight as salt water from the Gulf of Mexico is now threatening the city's water supply. The mayor signing an emergency declaration as the Army Corps of Engineers has planned to barge 36 million gallons of fresh water daily into the lower Mississippi River. This is the second straight year that climate change has made the river drop so drastically, and it has made it less resistant to the salt water that is coming in from the Gulf. Joining me now, CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, is here. I mean, obviously, they're trying to fix this. This yes. has happened before. What is their plan to do that? Well, they're building a sill underwater. Basically, what has happened a couple of years ago, we lowered the Mississippi River, which means a lot bigger ships can move up and down it, but a lot bigger threat for this to happen. And as a result of this incredibly dry, record-hot year, the Mississippi just isn't strong enough to push out the Gulf of Mexico. It should be running about 300 cubic feet per second. It's less... About half that, less than half that. It could go even lower as this drought continues. And it doesn't just threaten water systems uh, because they don't filter it. If it gets in the pipes, if it's lead pipes, there's about 50,000 of those in New Orleans. It could cut loose heavy metals and make it more toxic as well. People won't accidentally poison themselves. You'll taste the salt before it'll make you sick. Uh, but it is a huge concern. And this is because it has happened back to back years. They never predicted this sort of thing. Yeah. Same time, the barge traffic trying to get all the grain, liquefied national gas out to the world is now in a bottleneck because of this problem. But they're saying don't panic. You don't need to, to no. stockpile water or anything. No, like that. not yet. Folks in New Orleans, especially, there's a couple thousand folks in Plaquemine Parish down south that are starting to be affected. And those folks deserve to have the bottled water in case they need it. But this is a slow motion disaster. This will be four, five, six weeks this will take. Yeah. And I know something else, though, as we're monitoring that, you also spent a lot of time recently in Maui after we saw the wildfires happen there. Some residents were finally able to get back into their, their neighborhoods today. What do you know about yeah, that? Yeah, at least a dozen families were let in with PPE gear uh, under supervision from the authorities there. Hugely painful, as you can imagine. There's so many weeks since it's happened. Uh, they're opening up, up wider uh, in a couple weeks. We'll, I'll be there for that as well. But it's interesting that the fatality count was at about 115 for a few weeks they modified that downward. It's now 97. They found some of the remains were either double counted or non-human remains. There were over 300 missing for a while. That list is now down to 31. Uh, so it's still the deadliest in fire in modern history, but thankfully that's not as bad as we feared a few weeks ago. Yeah, but. and well, I mean, what are officials saying about what they plan to do going forward about that? I mean, the, the fear is that it's a reoccurring issue. Well, yeah, I mean, how they rebuild will be, the world will be watching. There's a huge fight uh, between 
Native Hawaiians and longtime locals about water rights, about land rights, about affordability and not letting just resort developers come in and take over that place as they try to rebuild. And you got to think about fire resiliency in Pacific Islands and a lot of other places we never thought about for those kinds of disasters before. Adaptation in real time on the Mississippi and in Hawaii. Yeah, it's just devastating for those families. Really but hopefully is. getting so back painful. in helps at least some. Bill yeah. Weir, I know you'll be back there soon, so thank yep, you. You bet. Keep us updated. You got it. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.